going to ask you to turn, uh, if you have a Bible, to the book of Exodus. If you're not familiar with the Bible, Genesis is the first book, and then Exodus is the second, and we're going to be looking at chapter 33 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under one of the seats around you. And if you're just here kind of checking out Christianity, there's a little bookshelf in our foyer that has Bibles and other resources back there. We're just really glad that you're here this morning. Please pick up anything that is of interest to you. It is our, our gift to you. So let me ask a question. If you were given a chance to get everything that is on your bucket list, to fill, fulfill every one of your desires... And you can think about what those are in your head right now. It may be financial security for the future. It may be a beautiful and engaging spouse. It may be kids that are all perfect. It may be a nice house on the beach. It may be, it may be, it may be, it may be. All of those those things. If you were given an opportunity to get that without a relationship with Jesus Christ, without a sense an experience of God's presence with you there, would you take that deal? As you look around, I think, at much of American religion today, that's basically what so many people want. We want the blessings of God, right? But we don't really want God meddling with us in our lives. We We want God kind of at a convenient distance that we can call on him when needed to fulfill kind of our desires and wishes, but this God that kind of takes up residence in our lives and begins messing with our wishes and desires and reorienting who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do, that's something that we're not all that excited about often in American Christianity. The text we're going to look at today actually gives this choice to the people of God, to the Israelites, to have what he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to fulfill those wishes, to enter into the promised land, to defeat their enemies, to experience economic prosperity, and just being there with all this material blessing, but without God's presence with them. So how do you think they responded? Let's read Exodus 33, and then we'll talk a little bit about it this morning. Exodus 33, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments, For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you're a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward, another name for Mount Sinai. Now Moses used, used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. 
And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered tent, the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go, and I think the best translation, with us, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is a reading of the word of God. So here we have kind of the story till this point. We've seen the Israelites are given this incredible blessing. God has brought them out of slavery in Egypt, delivered them out by massive plagues against the gods of Egypt and the Pharaoh of Egypt. He's brought them through the Red Sea. He's brought them to Mount Sinai. And then for the previous chapters, we've seen God interacting with the people. He's given them his 10 words, the 10 commandments. And then he's given Moses the instructions for building the tabernacle and for the priesthood so that God would dwell among his people, right? And we saw all that. And then last week, we saw what happened when Moses was up on the mountain. The people basically totally turned their back on God. The second commandment, right? Don't make any idols. And what do the people do? They make an idol. And we saw that just fall apart last week. And so here we have, in the midst of all these instructions, the people have sinned greatly. And Moses intercedes for the people. And so there's this sense of what is God going to do with us now? And so the Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here. So let's go. Let's move towards the promised land. And he says, I'm going to fulfill my word. I've made a promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob that you guys will go into the promised land, and I will do that for you. But you know what? 
I'm not going to go with you. And how did the people respond? Verse 4, when the people heard this disastrous word, they hear this as a disastrous word. The word there in Hebrew is, is ra, toven ra, good and bad. This is a, a bad word. This is not something that is good at all. We can have all the blessings of God, but if God does not go with us, that's, that's something that the ESV translates as a disastrous thing to happen. And that's the first point I want to make. Getting everything we want without getting God is disastrous for us. You know, at first reading, this sounds pretty good, right? All these promises are going to be filled. We're going to get into the land. The enemies are going to be driven out. It's going to land, be a land flowing with milk and honey. It's going to be great, but I'm not going to go with you. You can get all, as many gold medals as Michael Phelps. You can achieve business success, so you're one of the barons of Wall Street, and you're bringing in 100 mil a year. You can be the top gun pilot in the Navy. You can achieve everything that you want to achieve. You can send every one of your kids to Harvard or Yale or Stanford. All that can happen. But if that happens without God, what this text is telling us is it's a disaster. Let me ask a question. Are you content with the gifts God has given you? Is God essential for your life or is he peripheral? Is God on the fringes where you want to kind of access him when there's a need in your life and things aren't going that well? In other words, is God a means to an end or is he the end itself? Do I find the Lord beautiful and captivating or do I just find him useful for what I want to see happen in my life? As we look at life, we recognize how often our perspective is different than God's. We think if we got everything we wanted, that would be a great thing for us, right? Actually, if we get everything we want and what we want is not a good thing, then that's an evidence of God's wrath. That's what Romans 1 says. The people are clamoring for what they want, and God says, basically, I'm going to give you over, and you can have everything that you want. And he does not frame that. Paul does not frame that. That's a really good thing. He says this is an evidence of the wrath of God. Why? Because a lot of the things that we want are sinful and will lead ultimately to death. We don't see that right now, right? We think this is what's going to bring us life. There's a way that seems right to a person, but the end is, is death. And I think we've all been there. When I was young and when I was smarter than God, I knew a lot of the things that I needed to do in life to give me life, right? And now as I've aged a little bit, I realize, you know what? A lot of those roads that I was running down, if I'd have kept running down, were it not for the grace of God, that would have led to death and disaster in my life. I can have everything that I want, but if I don't have God, then it's all, as the book of Ecclesiastes says, that. I think oftentimes we're more interested in God for what he can give us than for who he is. 
Imagine you're engaged to somebody, and you know, you've done very well in life so far, um, you've got a lot of resources, and during your engagement you invest in this great investment that there, there's no way that that thing could go south, you're gonna make 100 times your money, and it's a for sure deal, and then all of a sudden, four weeks later, that thing goes belly up, you realize it was a scam and you've lost all your money, and when your fiance finds out about that, he or she says, uh, sorry, I'm not interested in marrying you anymore. How would you feel at that point in time? You would feel kind of used, right? You would feel like, oh, this person really didn't want me. All they wanted was the stuff that I could provide for them. And I think many times we approach the Lord in the same way in our lives. And if we get what we want, then it's like, oh, this is what is life. And the people here in, to me, one of their rare moments of clarity recognize, you know what, we can get all that, but if we get all that without God, it's gonna be disastrous. It's gonna be raw. It's gonna be bad. The people of Israel are often like the disciples. They vacillate between these moments of tremendous brilliance and moments of incredible stupidity. You know, last week we saw them basically cheating on their spouse on the honeymoon. God had just given the covenant, and it's just like right there, and then it's like, oh, what can we do? It's 40 days. Let's, you know, it's like, what in the world is going on with these people? But I think they realize here, you know what, that is not the way that's going to provide life for us. And we see in this passage that the plan was in Exodus 25, 8, that God would dwell among his people in the tabernacle. But what do we have happening in this section? There's something called the tent of meeting that Moses sets up. And it's not the same as the tabernacle. The tabernacle has not been built yet. And when that tabernacle ultimately is built, it sits right in the middle of God's people. But here, where is this tent of meeting? Verse 7 said, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, outside. So those, the author keeps repeating this. It's distant from the people. It's far out there. And you know what? The only people that have access to God are Moses and Joshua's out there as well. And when the cloud comes down, God meets with Moses out there face to face. It's an idiom of intimate communication. When you talk to somebody as a friend to a friend, you're not looking at their toes, you're not looking at their knees, you're looking at their face, right? And so the Lord would meet with Moses out there, but there's this huge distance between the presence of God and the people of God at this point in time. In chapter 19, we saw God's desire for this people in 19.6 would be a kingdom of priests, right? All these people related to God, experiencing God, and then telling others about God. And that's just kind of fallen by the wayside as these people have rebelled. And now the only one that God's really speaking with is Moses and Joshua. His assistant is out there as well. And so during one of these face-to-face -face meetings... Moses begins to dialogue with the Lord, I think wrestling a little bit with the Lord's command up in verse one to depart and go out of here, but I'm not gonna go with you. I'm just gonna send an angel with you. And if we remember back in chapter 23, there was my angel that was gonna go with them, the, the very presence of God in this theophany that would go, and now it's just an angel that goes. It's not the very presence of God with the people. And Moses is like, who, who's going to go with? I don't know who this angel is. I, I want your presence to go with me. 
And I think Moses realizes, and this is my second point, that God's presence gives the journey of life purpose and meaning. Moses realizes, he says to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor or grace in my sight. Moses is saying, yeah, you've said we've got this close relationship. You know me by name. You know my character, who I am, and I found grace in your sight. But if I found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Once again, Moses reminds God that, you know, this rebellious, stiff-necked crowd, <laughs> that's your, it's not just my problem. It's your people, too, Lord. And I love this. Moses is pushing in more and more in his relationship with God. Verse 13, if I've found favor in your sight and you say I have, please show me now your ways so that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. It's kind of circular, isn't it? I found favor in your sight, so show me more of who you are so that I know you more intimately so that I can experience more of your grace. Peter tells us that we're to grow in grace. And that's what Moses is pushing into is I want to know you more. John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So that is what life is all about. And Moses realizes that. And he says, if I found favor in your sight, I want you present with me. I know that all this stuff can happen, but without your presence with me, I'm not going to know your grace. And I want to know you. That's the main thing that I want, Lord. And he says, remember that this people, they're your people too. And the Lord says, my presence will go with you. And that you there is singular. I'm going to be with you, Moses. And I will give you singular rest. So God assures Moses, Moses, I'm going to go with you. And I'm going to give you rest. And when you see that word rest in the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible, it typically refers to rest from enemies. I'm going to give you victory. I will accomplish all this stuff that I promised to the patriarchs through you. That's got to be reassuring. But Moses is not content with that. Verse 15, and he said to him, if your presence will not go, and the ESV here says, with me, that is supplied. Many of your translations will say, with us. Literally, it's if your face will not go. It doesn't And then the translators supply with us or with me. To me, it's much better with us because he's just said, I will go with you. But Moses is petitioning for the people as well. He says, if your presence will not go with us, basically, then I don't want to go. Moses realizes that the journey without the people that God has raised up would be pointless and purposeless as well. He says, don't bring us up from here if you're not going to go with us. Do you know what he's saying there? I'd rather stay here and die than be deprived of your presence and have your people be deprived of your presence too. So I'm pleading with you. I'm interceding for myself and for these people that you would go with us. Does that remind you of anybody else? He was not content to experience God's glory alone. So Moses is interceding for the people, and he says basically, there's no point in going on without you. 
the promised land, everything that you have promised without you is pointless and purposeless and meaningless. Have you gotten to that point in life where you realize that? Sometimes it takes a while. Like I said, when you're young and you are smarter than God, you think these are all the things that's going to provide me with life, right? And those things are shiny and they're attractive and they say, wow, this is what life is. And the culture says, yeah, this is what life is. And you can't exist in a fulfilled way if you don't have an iPhone 32 when, you know, you've only got the 31. It's like, why go on? And Moses realizes that, you know, all this stuff that we chase after, yeah, it's got a degree of glory to it, but that glory always fades. No earthly glory is permanent. Even the best glory out there, and God gives some really amazing, awesome gifts to us. And we should enjoy those gifts, but if those gifts become a substitute for him, they're very dangerous in our lives. And Moses has gotten to that point, I think, that the author of Ecclesiastes got to as well. And he says, I've I've done everything, man. I've denied myself nothing my heart desired. Absolutely nothing. That verse, and I've used it over and over again, it just astounds me because I've never been at that place in my life when anything I want is like, I'm just gonna go get that. I want that, I'm gonna get it. I want that, I'm gonna get it. And he says, at the end of chasing after all that stuff, it's, as the King James says, vanity, a breath, emptiness. We can have all of that, and as Thoreau said, and called it destination sickness. When you get through and you've checked everything off of your bucket list, then what do you do? See, that's the problem. Most of us still have a lot to check on our bucket list. But there are people that have checked off almost everything on their bucket list. Bill and Melinda Gates, they're getting divorced this week. I heard on Monday, Bill transferred $2.4 billion into Melinda's account. Now, it seems a lot, but Bill's worth like $130 billion. So, you know, it's kind of a mere pittance. If I was Melinda's lawyer, I'd be like, wow, this, we need a little more than this. But the reality is, even if she gets half of that $120 or $30 billion that Bill has, she's not going to be any happier. Because all of that stuff, in the end, does not satisfy. We think it will, right? We think we will be different. Oh, if, if I had 60 mil, it's, it's million, just million, not billion. Man, I would do so much. My life would be perfect. And if God gives you that 60 million, great. Use it for his glory. But if you're pursuing that without God, that will not provide you with life. And that's where Moses gets here. And astonishingly, we see this huge heart Moses has for his people. And over and over again, we'll see him interceding for these stubborn people to me as a picture of Christ interceding for us. And so, what does the Lord say? The Lord said to Moses, verse 17, this very thing that you have spoken I will do for you, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So I'm going to do this thing for you. Moses says, you know, how else are we going to be unique among all the nations unless your presence isn't with us? You know what distinguishes the church from every other social club in the world? It's the presence of God and his people here. 
so that we begin to live out the life of Christ among one another. And a place where economic distinctions do not separate us, where racial distinctions do not separate us, where intellectual distinctions do not separate us, where we are coming together as God's people and we are very different in so many ways, but the thing that binds us together is a love for Jesus Christ and the presence of God within us. And if that's not there, folks, we are just a social club. How shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? God has called us into relationship with him through Jesus Christ, not just for eternal salvation, but to, for present transformation so that we begin to live the life of Christ out as we walk with one another in this life. Moses realizes that and he says, I don't want to go to the promised land without your people, God. I want you to go with them and that should be our heart for others too, going after that one sheep that is lost and saying, I want you to be part of this family. I've got a heart for that. That was Moses' heart here. And so God listens to the intercessor here. And he says, I'm gonna do this for you. And then I don't know why, but Moses may be emboldened by God's response. Verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord or Yahweh, the I am. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. I'm still in charge here, Moses. But he said, you cannot see my face for a man shall not see me and live. So here, Moses pushes in to God more. And I want to say to this section, God's presence is worth pursuing. His glory, and that's a, Christianese word. It means weightiness. And it's hard to describe in English. Maybe the word matter is similar to it. That, you know, matter has weightiness, but matter also matters, right? It's, this thing matters. And so Moses says, show me your glory. I want to see more of you. I want to experience more of you. And this is Moses, right? The guy that the Lord appeared to in the burning bush. The guy that goes into the tabernacle and meets with God face to face. And here he say, well, how can he meet face to face? And here he says he can't meet, see his face, what's going on there? Throughout this passage, the Hebrew word for face, panim, is used for presence and face. What I think is going on here is face-to-face -face is more of a Hebrew idiom for meeting personally. Because whenever you see Moses interacting with God or the people interacting with God, it's either with kind of a filtered presence of God, an Old Testament kind of manifestation of God in a human form, or even when Moses goes up on the mountain, what's always there? Smoke, right? In Leviticus 16, when the high priest is to go into the Holy of Holies and to meet with God, what does he bring in there? He brings in there in incense, right? And he lights it in there, and it says, God appears in the smoke above the cherubim. So there's always this kind of filter. So what I think is being said here, Moses is pushing into God. Say, I want to see more of you. I want to feel more of your weightiness. I, I've heard this about you, but I want to feel that weight pressed down on me. Have you ever had an experience with God where he just kind of overwhelms you with the weightiness of who he is? 
And it may be the weightiness of your sin sometimes, but it may be the weightiness of his love and he just crushes you with it and he just melts you. God wants us in relationship with him and it's more than just an intellectual understanding of God and it's an experience of who God is in our lives. That's what God wants for us. And Moses says, I've had some of that, but I want more. I wanna see and experience your glory. And God says, I'm gonna let my goodness pass in front of you. I'm gonna declare my name and we're gonna look at this more fully next week in Exodus 34. But the reality is God says, okay, you wanna see my glory, I'm gonna bring my goodness before you. And I think what he's saying there is his glory is best displayed in his amazing goodness towards us. You see that in the Gospel of John. John talks about glory, and and what is it that John says is the thing that most displays the glory of Christ and of God? Anybody? It's the cross. The place where God's goodness is most clearly demonstrated to us, and John says that's where you will be glorified. That's where my son is glorified. That's where I am glorified as the father who sent the son. That's my goodness, and I want you to see that. We have this tremendous privilege of being on the other side of the cross, and John says in John 1, Jesus was here, right? And his glory came, he's full of grace and truth, the glory of the only Son, the unique Son, is walking in front of us. And again, it's not the full-blown, this is, guess is God in human form because I don't think we have the ability to process a, a holy, perfect, pure God. I don't even have the senses to handle that, right? I can't even look at the sun for more than a few seconds without frying my eyes, right? But one day, right, one day, John says in 1 John 3, we're gonna see him as he is. We're gonna have new bodies that are equipped and enabled to handle the very presence of God and when we see him, we'll become like him, right? That's what I'm looking for. And Moses realizes, you know what? That is what life is about. I wanna experience more of you, God. I think it's C.S. Lewis says that aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you miss both. God's given us all these wonderful gifts, all these gifts to enjoy, and they're good and perfect gifts, but those gifts are meant to direct us back to the heart of God and say, God, you're such a wonderful giver of all these good gifts that I enjoy. But you know what? If you take away all of those gifts, you're still worthy of all my praise because you are the source of all glory and all weightiness in life. You give life meaning and purpose and significance. And we live in a day and age where people are longing for that, but we've cut off all transcendence from anybody. So everybody's just kind of making this up as they go along, right? It's all internal to me. So there's no ultimate stability in life, and it's, it's got to be crazy nerve-wracking because I get to decide everything about my life right now, right? What I am, what gender I am. What do I pursue? And those things are constantly changing in our world, and one day we're going to be on top of the world, and the next day we're gonna be the worst person in the world and trying to morph ourselves into all those directions and and know what what is the latest thing. And it's like, well, whoever's most popular right now is pushing that latest thing, and there's nothing ultimately transcendent. As someone has said, modern humanity has both feet firmly planted in midair. 
that there's no ultimate transcendence anymore. We just got to figure it out. And you know what? That's incredibly stress and anxiety producing in life. And what Moses has realized is, you know what? My glory is a derivative glory from the glory of God. He is the one that has created me in his image and because of that, I've got weight and substance. There's purpose and meaning. I'm not just a blob of protoplasm that one day is gonna return and I'm worth about $82 in chemicals to him. I don't know what the latest is in terms of the human body. But I'm worth a whole lot more than that. Why? Because this God that Moses is pursuing says, you're created in my image and you're valuable and you're worthwhile, so pursue me while you can. So let me ask you a question as we close. Is Jesus central or is he peripheral in your life? Is he a means to an end or is he the end itself? And if you hear that and you feel convicted about that, that's good. It means your heart is sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit. Because I think this is a process as well. God reveals more and more of his glory to us the more that we're willing to pursue him. So are you asking him for it? God, I want to see you. I want to be less entangled and engaged in all these things that so often take my heart away from you and I want to see your glory that will enable me to put everything in a proper perspective. But if I'm not pursuing you, if you are not going with me, then I'm gonna get it all upside down and all squirrely and my life is gonna be disastrous. And how do we experience that glory? I think we start by meditating on God's goodness just who he is, especially in Jesus. The disciples, John said, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth. And I think that's John's kind of Greek translation of what we're gonna look at next week. This chesed va'emet, his loving kindness and faithfulness. That's most clearly demonstrated, I think, in Jesus Christ. So if your prayer can be just one prayer, say, God, show me Jesus and his goodness. I want to know him. I want this to be more than just intellectual experience. I want to be pressed on with the weightiness of who you are and transform so that I'm distinct and unique, not because of me, but because of what you've done in me. And if you're not going to go forward with me, I don't want to go anymore. I want to be with you. Let's pray. Father, we are so often like the Israelites. We vacillate between moments of just sheer stupidity and moments when we get a glimpse of what we're to be about and feel drawn to that. Oh, Lord, make those moments where we want to pursue you bigger in our lives. Lessen the moments of our stupidity. And once again, Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who doesn't know just how beautiful 
you are. That your spirit would just crack through whatever layers are keeping you distant from them. And you would reveal your glorious love to them. That forgiveness is available. That life and hope is available. That freedom from guilt and a clear conscience is available. That purpose and meaning is available. If they would pursue you and know you. God, we're recipients of your grace and your favor. Show us your ways so that we can know you more, so that we can more deeply experience your grace. It's in Jesus' powerful and precious name I pray. Amen. Amen.